0: Hello and welcome to another podcast of Marriage on a Tightrope. I'm Katie. I'm Alan. And we are married and we are super excited that we have Noah Rochetta on with us. Noah, thank you for being here with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: And this is the the longest distance interview we've ever done. No, it's not. We interviewed uh, Gina Colvin out in New Zealand. That's right. Sorry, Noah. Uh,
1: I'll take Uh a second. (laughs) The the
2: record that you didn't know you wanted has been broken, (laughs) but no, we're, we're extremely happy and, and honored. I I don't want to toot you too hard, toot the horn too hard, but we will, because I know that a lot of people in this space really appreciate your point of view and the podcast that you run with Second Buddhism. So thank you for everything you do. We'll say that first and foremost. Yeah. Thank you. So what made you want to be on this podcast? Why was this interesting enough for you to take your time out?
1: Well, uh, first of all, just the, the concept of marriage on a tightrope, any relationship has so many intricacies to make it work. And I know uh, from personal experience, when it's a, a mixed faith relationship, um, we can all use all the help that we can get. So any perspective, any um, concepts or ideas that are useful tools for one couple, could, I think would really be appreciated by any other couple. So that was a big motivator for me. It's a
2: good uh, tie-in to, to the perspective that you bring to it as well. Before we get into kind of your yeah. domain of expertise, uh, we'd love to just get to know you uh, personally. I know a lot of people, including ourselves, uh, outside of your podcast, don't know a whole lot about you. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Where'd you grow up and, and uh, what's your tie to the
1: LDS Church and all that fun stuff? Okay, so kind of just giving you a brief history. Uh, I grew up in Texas, uh, lived there till I was about 13. My I have a twin brother, an older brother, and my parents, we we all lived there. And my mom is Mexican. She and my dad met at the airport. Uh, typical could be a movie scene, you know, where, <laughs> where he was dropping off a friend at the airport, saw her as she was arriving to the US and they fell in love and Uh, Long story short, um, they ended up later moving to Mexico. So when I was 13, my twin brother and I moved down to Mexico and spent most of our formative years living in Guadalajara and uh, really developed uh, a sense of appreciation for our uh, two cultures being part Mexican and part American. Um, From there, served a mission in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, and then came home. And by then, only knew, uh, my only real connection to the U.S. was people that I knew who lived in Utah. So that led me to Utah to go to school. And in college, I met my wife there. And we ended up uh, getting married and, mo- and staying in the U.S., staying in Utah. Um, and uh, we have three kids. We've always talked about the idea of maybe giving our kids the same opportunity that I had to be able to live in, in Mexico, to be able to have an appreciation for their roots, for the Spanish cult, uh, Spanish language and the Mexican culture. And that led to us eventually moving down uh, here. So your, your parents then, um, were they both
2: members? Was one a member and then the other was a convert? How, how did, what was the history there?
1: So my mom was Catholic and my dad was, I'm not entirely sure what he was, but he couldn't marry my mom because he had been married previously and they didn't let them get married in the Catholic church. So they kind of started, uh, church hunting. And in that process, uh, one of my dad's friends who had converted to Mormonism, uh, kind of turned my dad onto Mormonism and he was the, uh, I guess the first point of contact for our family to investigate the Mormon church and my parents both converted when I was about three. And so I essentially grew up in the church and always, I had the typical upbringing of someone uh, that someone would have in the church while simultaneously holding a little bit of space for the Catholic groups because all of my schooling was in uh, Spanish and private Catholic schools And we would attend mass as part of our school curriculum. So Mm -hmm. I kind of always uh, held a little bit of both, although uh, I would say doctrinally, if we were to say that, I I I felt LDS and that's what made sense to me and resonated for me. Although a few times on my mission, I did defend the Pope from criticism (laughs) because I I felt a sense of uh, loyalty to my Catholic uh, ancestors and and cousins, and grandma, and stuff like that. <laughs> of course, of course.
0: And what about your wife's family? Are they, did she, did she come from an LDS background as well?
1: Yes, she does. So my wife's family uh, is from, lives in Utah, uh, Camas, and they have a, a long background of uh, pioneers and ancestors who immigrated with the original pioneers and, and were original settlers of, of the valley where they live. Uh, so they feel, uh, a strong sense of connection to those roots and to their, the, the story of their families, uh, crossing with the pioneers. All right. That's
2: cool. So we've got some second generation and multi-generational, multi-gener- uh, LDS. That's great.
0: I think every couple goes into their marriage, at least like being mixed faith in some way because you grew up so differently different backgrounds and it, you may have something in common like religion but that doesn't mean that you like do the things the same way and is that what you found with your spouse when you were married that you, because of your background and her background it didn't it wasn't exactly the same
1: yeah that's very much what i found and not only within the religion that to me was interesting that within the shared religion we we had a very different approach growing up outside of Uh, The country. In Mexico, there's no emphasis really on church history or the pioneers. We don't do pioneer day. Like there's just a whole different approach to Mormonism living in Mexico. So even within the shared religion, there were already differences. But then of course, there were the cultural differences with um, just the American mentality versus the Mexican mentality. Mm. So going into the the marriage from day one, there were uh, a lot of differences in our cultural views and understandings of how the world works and why it works the way that it works and what aspects of all of it are important. Uh, and that that, that was, uh, I guess that was my first time to really encounter um, the Utah approach to Mormonism. Um, <laughs> sure. And it was probably her first time to kind of encounter an approach that isn't the Utah approach to Mormonism. But it, it was never a problem for us. It, I think we both really enjoyed the perspective that we each brought to the table. Yeah.
2: I want to ask about the American versus Mexican culture going into the marriage. You mentioned there's differences there. What give us some highlights on on what the differences there are.
1: (laughs) Well, okay. A a couple of differences that uh, stood out early on one, one cultural difference in among Mexicans and possibly other forms of, of Hispanic cultures, but, we don't like to say no. So culturally, you just know that if someone says no, um, I mean, that's a very big deal. So it's more likely that they're going to say yes, and then later change the reminder back out of of mm. what they committed to. So for example, my wife, this is so, something that happened early on where she she had a name that she liked for a potential future child. And she brought up the name, and I didn't like the name, but like again, culturally, we don't like to say no, we don't like to have conflict, so it's easier to say, "Oh yeah, sure, that's a name that could work," hoping that maybe she'll find another name later and we'll never have to address it. Well, she liked the name, and several years later, when we were having uh, a daughter, she's like, "Remember that name?" and and she kind of pitched the name, and and I was like, "Oh, I I don't know, maybe we should." And and she was really offended that, that suddenly I didn't like the name. And from my perspective, it was like, but I never did. And she's like, but you said you did. And it's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I did. And it was, it, it was hard for me to understand, like, what's the big deal if I said I liked it, but really I don't? Culturally, that's common in, right. in Mexico, right? Right. And for her, it was like, no, if you ever said you liked it, you better like it till the day you die. And, uh, it, was very, it was very foreign to me. And then, so that's one. And then the other, the other nuance in in Mexican mentality is uh, it's not so black and white and we're, we're raised with a lot of gray. And, you know, like if you get pulled over by a police officer, it's no big deal to, to to decide, well, there's gotta be a way around this. Like how much is this going to cost me? I'll pay you instead of going to pay the ticket. Right. Like that, uh, that mindset of, of, uh, well, it's, it's it's corruption is what it is, but it's so prevalent in Mexico that just anything that's a system, like the system, an American thinks of the system as this rigid thing and you it works and you respect it and you don't go around it, right? And and within Mormonism, I think that same mindset prevails. Mm-hmm. But right. for a Mexican, there's a very strong mindset of, well, a rule is more like a guideline. And if it's a guideline, you know, there are ways to kind of flex and bend the rules, and in, in her mindset, from the American point of view, it's like, no, there's, it's, you don't bend the rules. That's just how it is. So we would encounter little things like, um, the rating system with movies, like, oh, should we go watch this? No, that's rated R. And I'd be like, no, it's rated B because it's a different system in Mexico. And we never, ever got the advice of the ratings because that, that whole concept didn't translate because it's a different rating system. Right. So we would, what would be a normal movie for Mexican Latter-day Saint youth uh, that we would all go watch suddenly with, you know, if I was around American Latter-day Saint youth and they'd be like, Oh no, we would never go watch that. It was like, what, why? (laughs) So I encountered that with my wife early on in our marriage with, should we watch this movie? And she would be like, no. And I would be like, why what's wrong with that? And we just approached it very differently because of that same mindset of the gray areas and and the nuances to rules.
0: I don't know about you, Alan, but I think I just I just had a light bulb moment when you explained um, the first concept of like, you can't say no. And then you're like, when it comes down to it, you're like, oh, well, no, I actually didn't want to do that because I, Alan and I encountered a lot of people on our mission. And I don't know
2: I thought the same thing when, Didn't you speak the that? same
0: thing? Who who would say like yes initially, right, to meeting with us. And then when we would show up at the Nine house times out of
2: ten it was yeah.
0: Right. And and then and I don't know if
2: that's common everywhere
1: that's with probably, missionary work, but
0: but it probably I never um really put together that it could be a cultural thing. So it's, that was it's
1: very much a cultural thing very enlightening.
0: Thing. Yeah. 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 And
2: most most of the people that we taught and baptized were South American. Mm -hmm. um most usually south american ecuadorian colombian Mm -hmm. uh there's not many people from mexico and spain but we i rarely taught spanish people (laughs) it was mostly latin americans yeah very interesting i I, remember
1: on on my mission in ecuador i knew that about the culture so i remember a couple of instances where my companion would be like hey they already said yes to the commitment and I'd be like, no, but that doesn't mean that they're really going to be there. Like, we need to make them triple, quadruple yeah. committed to this yeah. because I didn't, I didn't trust the yes where my companion did trust the yes. Mm. It,
2: we learned pretty quickly not to trust, not to trust it. So they would, you know, we would write down their their phone number and read it back <laughs> to them to make sure we wrote it down correctly, but read it back incorrectly on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and then they would say, "Yep, that's fine." And we go, "All right, well, we're not going to." you're not going <laughs> to. <laughs> oh,
0: wow, that's really fascinating. So, um I I am so I'm so interested in knowing like how did you get into secular Buddhism? I mean, you're did you study it before or can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, and
2: how it specifically I think a good bridge would be how it tied into any sort of did you have a faith crisis? Was there an exchange for one system for another or a melding of the two? Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. There, so there was a, a definitely a transition. I was always interested in uh, philosophy in high school history was my favorite subject and philosophy was pretty close behind it. Just the, the idea of exploring ideas. Um, so that was there in the background. And then, Uh, But there was never an inkling of uh, or a reason to kind of question my worldview. It made perfect sense to me for most of my life. But in four years into our marriage, uh, I found our marriage was suddenly on the tightrope. And and this was with, in spite of our shared views, I think there were enough differences that um, I started seeing red flags like maybe we're not as happy as we thought that we were And that was uh, in a way that kind of shook the ground for me because I, I had felt up until that moment that as long as you're doing all the things you're supposed to do and believing what you're supposed to believe, there's no reason for there to be any rockiness in a relationship. And I was confronted with the reality that, well, there is, and it's I'm not sure why. So in the process of me trying to figure out How can I make my marriage feel healthier and happier? Uh, I wanted, I I started um, kind of researching and studying religion in general, starting with mine, but also just uh, psychology and uh, what, you know, how relationships work. And the more that I studied uh, psychology, the more I was encountering concepts that were coming from, from Eastern thought. Uh, so much of psych- psychology concepts today overlap uh, from Buddhism because Buddhism is a tradition that's been studying the mind for you know a couple thousand years. So as as this exploration of me trying to understand myself and the dynamics of the role that I play in this marriage, um, it just slowly kept creeping over and over more towards um, Eastern philosophy and concepts that come from Buddhism. And there was a moment where um, I wouldn't say there was like a big thing, like this, this thing made it crash. It wasn't like that, but there was a very clear moment where suddenly the, I guess you could say the Western way of viewing reality and the world and and specifically myself just collapsed and no longer made sense to me. And the way that uh, the Buddhist worldview kind of explains the understanding of self and the relationship of yourself with, with uh, the universe that explanation made so much more sense to me. It just resonated with me. And I, and from there, I just went down that rabbit hole and studied it. And then I, I eventually did a, a ministry program and just kind of went deep down that hole of studying Buddhism. And in the middle of all that, of course, there was that transition where at some point you have to decide, are you more this, less this and more that? And that was a, a pivotal moment for us in our marriage where it's like, well, do you even still consider yourself uh, a Mormon or, or a Christian? And those, you know, that was a a hard phase and a difficult thing to kind of sort out. But with time and with patience, we came out of it on the other end, and uh, very supportive of each other and the paths that we're on. So that's kind of how I slowly transitioned from what I would say was the the life of of a Mormon and a Christian to the life of a as someone who identifies more as being Buddhist.
0: What can you tell us? What the difference between like a traditional Buddhist and secular Buddhism is?
1: Yeah, so secular Buddhism is kind of like it's it's an approach within the overall form of Buddhism that is uh, very interested in the philosophy of Buddhism rather than Buddhism as a religion. And I kind of encountered it because as a, as a believing member, I wasn't interested in transitioning to Buddhism as a religion. I was interested in transitioning a lot of Buddhist concepts into my current worldview, which was Chris, Chris, a Christian background. Um, and I encountered this movement called secular Buddhism that was happening at the time. And it really spoke to me because then I didn't feel the need to have two religions here to compete.
2: And just for uh, reference,
1: about what year was this that you this was, discovered this movement? 2011.
2: Okay, perfect. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Um, so it, it's hard to, to compare secular Buddhism with traditional Buddhism because traditional Buddhism isn't a single entity either. There are so many schools of Buddhism, and, and they vary, like Tibetan Buddhism versus Zen Buddhism. It would almost seem like they're two entirely different uh, schools of thought to, to, to someone who sees it from the outside. Um, so secular Buddhism is also not just a singular entity. There's no uh, there's no governing body that determines what is secular and what is classical. Um, so in some ways, Zen Buddhism is a very secular form of Buddhism, where Tibetan Buddhism might seem like a very religious form of Buddhism. Um, so, yeah, if I was to answer the question, the, the difference between the two, I think the secular approaches Buddhism without any kind of supernatural uh, or religious concepts and it's very compatible with people who have no religious concepts or who already do have religious concepts because it's not competing. Have you found
2: people just on the surface with those two terms having an adverse reaction or response to just the name of the podcast and the practice itself? Secular within the LDS faith is typically used as a I don't know if derogative is the right term, but it's more worldly. And then Buddhism, whole separate religion, secular Buddhism. When I come and introduce that to Katie and I actually don't remember exactly if there was a reaction or not, but when I go to Katie and say this, you need to listen to this. It's not challenging your belief system at all, but it's secular Buddhism. There could be kind of a "Hmm," reaction. Have you, have you experienced that before?
1: You know, I have, I've experienced it much more when this, when Buddhism comes up. So it's almost like as the, as, the, as the words coming out, secular, no, that's not too scary. Cause a lot of secular stuff that isn't that scary, but then Buddhism comes out and they're kind of like, Whoa, wait a second. I am not interested in that. Um, so a, a big part of why I went with the name secular Buddhism for the, for my podcast and for the work that I'm doing was to, with the attempt to disarm the listener to think look there's nothing religious happening here there's mm-hmm. no competition of of ideas um and i found uh, so far i i get very very little uh pushback from people who are concerned with the name uh, most people are intrigued at the combination of those two things that seem so mm-hmm. opposite secular totally non-religious buddhism religious and you're like wait it's like calling a podcast non-religious religion mm-hmm. you know and they're kind of like wait a second what is that and for the most part, people are curious and they want to know what it, what does that mean?
0: Right. Yeah. What do you, I'm interested to know, like, what do you, what are the most compelling overlaps in secular Buddhism and Mormonism or are there any?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think there are there. Um, one that stood out to me uh, early on was in, in Mormonism there's the concept of eternal progression mm-hmm. and But doctrinally, or or I guess in in our day-to-day life of uh, LDS life, we don't think about that often, the implication of eternal progression. And in Buddhism, you do. You're you're thinking about that constantly. The the concept of impermanence and interdependence in Buddhism implies that the path is the goal, and you never arrive. So that whole concept of you never arrive is pushed very heavily from the Buddhist lens, but it 's not in the mormon lens in the mormon lens you 're kind of always picturing yourself you know on the path. If we were to use the analogy of the tree of life it 's like well there 's this path, and then there 's the end there 's the tree, mm-hmm. so there 's always the thought of the end, but uh, if you if you were to really sit and think about the implications of eternal progression uh, it, are the same as Buddhism, it means you never arrive, mm-hmm. and you just go and you go and you go, and when you 're done, you keep going. And you never get there because progression is an eternal thing. And I, so that was something that stood out to me where my wife and I talked about that. And it's like that's kind of a cool overlap in the deeper sense of the two ideologies. Mm. Yeah. What about those the the
2: those that conflict? So any any differences that conflict, especially of any points of view that in a marriage specifically, uh there would be a big red flag for someone that was still LDS. Is there anything like that within secular Buddhism or the practice that that you deploy uh, that would that would raise alarms for, for someone that's LDS or that's starkly different?
1: Um, no, I I can't think of any, and the reason why is because in in a very general sense, what you get from the Mormon approach or the LDS approach is here's a worldview and here are the answers to life's questions, right? Who am I? Why am I here? What happens when we die? Those are all questions that have answers. And another tradition comes along like uh, Buddhism, specifically the secular approach to Buddhism, and it doesn't have answers to any of those questions. It focuses all of its energy to the question itself. So rather than saying, you know, who am I? Well, here's answer A. And now here's answer B, and now you have to pick. That would be hard, and that could be a conflict in a in a marriage. Um the the Buddhist approach says, you know, who am I? Well, who wants to know? Why do you why do you feel that question is so important? So it never conflicts because it's not about the answers, it's entirely about the questions. And it doesn't matter how big the question gets. Is there a God? Well, you got one whole presentation from this LDS side, and then on the other, if you ask the same question, is there a god, they'd say, Why does that matter? Or or where where do you think that question comes from? Or why is, why do you feel the need to know? So again, if you go down that path and explore that, it's never going to conflict because they're not going to give you an answer that's going to conflict with the answer you're getting from the other side. So I've found in my marriage, they seem to be pretty compatible or, or they work pretty well together because we're never competing over whose answer is right. What may happen from time to time is the analysis of, well, why do you think that answer means so much to you? And that may force a little bit of uncomfortable introspection on on her part if she's not used to being introspective. But um, on my part, it might never really cause anything too strong to surface because there's not an answer to compete from my side of the table. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So I just want to be clear. So is your
0: wife active? I mean, what's, what is, and what is like your participation level right now with the church?
1: Uh, Yes. My wife is active and uh, uh, I would say orthodox in in her approach to, to Mormonism Mm -hmm. uh, as are my kids, uh, just kind of by default. Yeah. Um, And my participation as I, I attend from time to time with my family Mm -hmm. and I just, uh, sit quietly with them. And when sacraments over, I usually go out to the car or I'll sit out in the foyer and read a book. Um, uh, only because, uh, you know, I'm just not interested in, 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 going to class, but I, um, I am interested in making sure my family knows that I support them. And if this is something that's meaningful to them, I go from time to time, but I don't always go if I have plans or, you know, I record my podcast usually on Sundays, mm-hmm. um, and I also do other activities sometimes on Sundays, yeah. um, so that's that's kind of how we navigate that as a family. So two pronged question. <laughs>
2: so when you're when you're participating and you're you're supporting your your family and by by going to church, um, how is that experience for you? I went today, for example. The the, the things that are said from the pulpit, do those sting you? Are you concerned about your 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 children learning these things and how does the your embracing of uh secular buddhism help with the emotions that can can come from church participation
1: yeah that's a good question and the answer would be it varies uh depending on which word i go to uh, when we're if we're in utah for example versus here um sometimes the nature of the topics that are discussed are very, very different. In one word, it might be like, we're going to get into deep doctrine today, where in another word, it's just talking about, you know, what can we do to be more Christ-like? And so based on the topics, it can be um, somewhat of a pleasant experience, but there have been instances where a message is being communicated that uh, makes me feel like, oh man, I want to make sure I when we get home that I, I can kind of counter this and say, well, here's my take on that. But at the same time, I don't want, I don't want that to be my wife's experience that anytime I'm there with them, I feel the need to interject my view because she doesn't need to have my view if she doesn't want it. And so that's been something that I've had to kind of learn to navigate. It's like, um, you know, she's, uh, she's not interested in knowing what I think about everything that's expressed over the pulpit. Um, And and those instances where I do go and maybe it makes me feel a certain way, I've kind of taken those now as ways for me to practice what I'm trying to do, which is getting to know myself and asking myself, why did that ruffle my feathers? Or why does that even bother me if someone thinks that or believes that or says that? And those have been, uh, there have been moments that have come out of those experiences where I learned a little bit about myself. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. So those, that, those self-reflecting questions that you're asking back at yourself, how do they manifest? I know that that's a, a central part of secular Buddhism. Like, are there, are there certain tenets or, um, or teachings or stories that are told that it, within secular Buddhism that, that help you harness that, that ability or the, the, that self self-reflection?
1: Kind of. So there's a the practice that we talk about, you know, typically, Um, we all experience emotions and all emotions have causes and conditions. So it may be that so-and-so said this, which reminded me of that, which now makes me feel this. And this feeling that I have uh, is a, it's either pleasant or neutral or unpleasant. And if it's a pleasant experience, then it takes me on this trajectory in my line of thoughts and reactions. But if it's an unpleasant one, it may take me on this other trajectory of my next thoughts and reactions and what we're trying to practice in uh, in the Buddhist approach is the what we would call like putting a gap between each action and reaction. So that's the chain that's always going. And if I can catch myself in that moment where I realize, oh, that triggered this overwhelming feeling inside of me, I can kind of pause there for a moment and put a gap between how I'm going to react next. The reaction may be, uh, you know, the thought triggered an emotion and the emotion triggered a memory and the memory triggered a whatever. If somewhere along that path, I can kind of put a little gap and pause, then what that gives me is a little bit more, uh, ability to be skillful with what comes next. And that's what we're practicing, uh, in, as, as Buddhists. That's what we're after is skillful action. Mm-hmm. So what it may do is it may lead to a conversation later that day, uh, with, Uh, my wife, for example, if it was something that she said and that made me feel a certain way, I may sit with the discomfort for a moment, but then the reaction that's happening in my head is, okay, how am I going to bring up this topic later in a way that's skillful, that's not me being too emotional or reactive. And Mm -hmm. and then we can have a a skillful conversation that would not have come if I had just allowed myself to go on doing my normal habitual reactivity. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Going along with that, I think about like living in the importance of being in the present, right? So taking those things you've learned and then and then applying them to what the, you're presently doing. And I think um, especially like in our case, we can get stuck on... Like the past, and we can get stuck on the fact that our future is going to look different than it than what we thought it would. Right? LDS, the LDS culture is very good at laying out exactly what your life looks like, and when suddenly you have a spouse that's um, changed some of the plans. My bad. <laughs> um, that that can be so difficult for for someone looking into the future saying, this is, I, I no longer get to go on a mission with my husband, or I no longer get to, um, do X, Y, and C. So can you talk to what it is we can do right now in the present that, that would be helpful to us?
1: Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the, I guess that would be one of the areas where I do see a significant difference in one, one path over the other path. Mm-hmm. Um, like you were talking about this the picture that's painted of of having somewhat of a a sense of certainty this is how life is going to end up or should end up and uh all along that path you know you just have to have faith and you have this foundation to stand on uh, that that sense of a firm foundation gives the sense of of safety and security mm-hmm. and from the buddhist tradition it's the opposite they're they're trying to Pull the rug out from under your feet constantly to get you comfortable with discomfort and and comfortable with uncertainty and I think there 's a certain sense of wisdom that comes with that, the wisdom of insecurity where um, at some point you 're not afraid of whatever life 's going to throw at you if you have no expectation of what life should be throwing at you mm-hmm. and I think when we correlate that in a in a marriage, you know my wife and I have talked about this because we had discussed one day going on a mission or one day doing this or that. And it is unfortunate to think, well, that picture that we had in our heads, that's not going to happen now. But what's helped us uh, is for me to remind her, but that's not the only thing that's changed, right? It could have been, you know, we had this picture in our head that we were going to have two kids and, but here we are with three, right? Or we had this picture in our mind that we would be living in a two-story house with this, this, and that, but we're not. We're living in this one little tiny house, and you know, <laughs> um, so there are already inconsistencies with reality and the picture we had for reality. So we can start to say, well, why then? Why does that one matter so much if all these other little things that aren't matching those haven't ruffled the feathers? Mm. And with the mission specifically, you know, I'll usually say, well, let's just imagine maybe it wasn't my uh, belief system that changed? What if it was that I was in an accident and now I'm paralyzed and, and sure you could still do a mission paralyzed, but it's going to be a whole different experience. Would you still be somewhat frustrated with me because of, uh, you know, my change and how I am now affects the picture of reality that you had in mind. And and of course she's like, well, no, not at all. Like, well, but then why is this any different? I didn't, I didn't wake up and say, Hey, this will be fun. Let me go change my beliefs today. It just happened. And I'm sorry that it happened, but that's how it unfolded. And here we are trying to make our best of it. And that, that was like a really useful example that it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. We can, we're just trying to make it work. And if it wasn't this, it'll be something else that's changed because it's always all changing all the time. Right.
2: I was talking to a coworker uh, just the other day and I'll say, Hi. To him. Hi, Jesse. Uh, I was talking to him, and, and he put forth a very interesting thought about, about Christ, about Jesus. That Jesus, if you read the account in the New Testament, had so much Eastern thought influence in his teachings. And one specific uh, interpretation of a very popular scripture that, that uh, Jesus has, is quoted as saying is, Be ye therefore perfect. And what he explained to me is, goes along with what you two were just speaking about, uh, Katie and Noah, that, that be therefore perfect does not mean don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean you have to be, per- literally be perfect and only do the things that uh, you're commanded to do. It actually means to live in the present moment, to live free of, of judgment, um, desires, hatred, uh, not focusing on the past, not focusing on the future, uh, that, that, that's what he actually meant. It's an interesting interpretation, but I guess the the question that I'm going to tie this into meditation a little bit because that seems to be one of the goals of meditation is to only focus on what you're currently experiencing, to only think about you know we do the the Sam Harris uh, waking up app, and it's you know feel your feet on the floor, feel the breath exiting your the tip of your nose. Uh, feel the couch on your legs, and it's all very much focused on here and now. Uh, so this is a very long monologue to introduce a, an interesting concept that ties Jesus into it. But I guess my my question to you would be: you know, we absolutely can learn from the past, and we need to plan for the future. So where is the line between um, ignoring the past, quote unquote? and not planning for the future, where where is it harmful, or is it harmful to truly live in the present?
1: Well, I would correlate this to a marriage. I think a marriage is the perfect example here where a marriage at any single space and time, at the present moment, it's, you've arrived at this moment in your marriage because of every single thing that's happened in the past. So uh, the past plays an important role, and then, of course, there's the role of the future, right? Everything that we do right now affects what the future is going to look like for us in our marriage. So rather than thinking of it as, well, only the present matters, don't think of the future and don't think of the past, I'm not sure that's entirely uh, skillful or beneficial. It's more like the only space that we have to work with is the present moment. And in this present moment, what are we doing to make our marriage um, the best version of it that it can be. And my, my wife and I have talked about this where, um, you mm-hmm. know, we'll, we'll mention like from her perspective, there's kind of the, almost the, uh, safety net that like, we've got eternity to figure it out, right? She's got eternity for me to figure out, oh, maybe I should have done this differently and, and, and I'll do it the way she thinks I should do it. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, I don't, I, we don't have that safety net. I've got this one shot and that's been actually a pretty healthy combination because I can, from time to time, bring out the, the evaluation of, okay, let's sit and talk about how are things going? Are you happy in our marriage? What can we do? What can I do to be a better partner and a better spouse? And, um, so getting to what you mentioned about the be ye therefore perfect it's like well in a marriage what is a perfect marriage right there's your perfect marriage may look very different than my perfect marriage and when we understand the flexibility that exists in a concept uh, as seemingly uh, permanent as as perfect you realize well um it can only ever exist in this present moment where right now it's perfect in the sense that we're making it work could it be better yeah probably there're probably a lot of ways it could be better but is it to the point where we're throwing it away no we're still at the point where we're making it work well then it's perfect because again the the concept of eternal progression falls in here you know we're always trying to get it better it's always you never reach perfection but but somehow there is Eternal progression, right? So, if if that's true and progression is eternal, then there is no such thing as perfect in the way we've always thought of perfect. There can only be perfect in the sense of it means you're you're figuring it out. And -hmm. if you're figuring it out, that's that's all you need. What more do we need in a marriage, right? And so that's been helpful for us to take our marriage from time to time and say, right now in this moment, how is it, and what can we do better? And we didn't used to do that before. We just always assumed that it was fine, and sometimes it wasn't at all, but we didn't bother to talk about it because we had that safety net of, well, in, in the eternities, will figure it out. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: When in the process of figuring it out, like you said, I think one of the things that I struggle with is uh, I am so tied to my emotions. And that's a really hard thing to separate, um, especially where religion comes into play. And sometimes I feel like I I just let my emotions take over. And so, what have you done in your own marriage? And how can you, when you're in the thick of emotion, um, how can you separate it and not get caught up in it?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. And I think this is beneficial to anyone and any in any role that you're playing in life, the understanding that when an emotion arises, it's it's just an emotion in the same way that when a thought pops into your head, it's just a thought that popped in. Um, but I think we, we tend to have emotions about our emotions. It's like, mm-hmm. not only am I mad, but I'm mad that I'm mad because mm. there may be a belief attached to that emotion, like you shouldn't be mad well that complicates the emotion of anger because now you're feeling it on multiple uh, in multiple layers there's the anger and the anger about the anger and in buddhism we we talk about this as the the concept of the second arrow and the idea is that the first arrow when you get struck with an arrow you it's like boom you were struck by an arrow now you can't do anything about it but you can make it worse by picking up a second arrow and poking and prodding at that spot where you got hit and like why did why did you throw this arrow at me here on my arm at this spot? And you just keep poking at it. You're like, oh, okay, calm down. You're making it worse. Yeah. So when, when we experience emotions, we're kind of doing that, right? Like an emotion arises and we cannot help it. That's just what's there now. So what we do in terms of the practice is when that emotion arises, you recognize it and you allow it to be. So anger is a good one uh, as an example, because it's one that, we're all familiar with, everyone's been angry at some point. And when you experience anger, it's helpful to pause and say, okay, I'm experiencing anger. Wow, what does it feel like? Where do I feel it? Is it my nose that's mad? Is it my, you know, is it in my stomach? My, where do I feel that? And you start to, by analyzing what you're experiencing, you naturally create a sense of separation because the observer of the emotion is, is neutral. You know, I remember my brother once telling me uh, he was doing this as a practice and he was like, you're right. When I notice that I'm experiencing anger, the one that notices that, is that angry too? And he realized it's not, it's the observer's neutral. So when we experience a really strong emotion and we can observe it for a moment, that automatically creates a little bit of space. And, and then what you want to do at that point is not, um, you know, try to identify if you have a belief around that uh emotion. For example, I'm angry, but I shouldn't be angry because everyone thinks I'm the nice guy and I don't get angry. Oh, that's making the anger more because now I'm angry and I don't want people to know that I'm angry. And those can be fun little instances where, okay, I am learning something about myself. So that's how I do it in my practice. When a strong emotion arises, I first notice it. And and then I work I work with it from there. And it's been very interesting in my marriage because I have, I have the tendency to avoid conflict at all costs. My wife has the tendency to, she's type A personality. She has to express what's on her mind in that moment. So the mix of our personalities sets us up for often, I don't say what I wanted to say. And then I resent that I didn't say it. And she says what she wanted to say. And she may regret that she said it. And we can have a discussion or an, an argument, and i 'll be feeling a certain emotion and Now I can even catch myself in that moment where I start laughing i 'm like boy i 'm really angry and she's like you're angry, why are you laughing i'm like it's just funny that this is bothering me so much like i can I actually have a second emotion that can arise in the midst of the first emotion where before i couldn 't do that. it was whatever that first emotion was we 're on the roller coaster, and here we go. <laughs>
0: That's fascinating to me. And I hope I can get there one day because I, I, I feel like as time passes, I feel like I, I become more skillful at, you know, recognizing my emotions, but I definitely feel triggers sometimes. And, um, I think better recognizing those triggers too would help me to keep things together or at least recognize them in the moment rather than just let the emotion happen and, spout out for whatever I'm going to spout out and feel bad about it afterwards. So
1: So
2: with these emotions, um, I wanted to, to poke a little bit at this. So it seems like there's sitting in the emotion and recognizing it and thinking about it, I think can be, can be misunderstood as you're not taking action because of the emotion or sometimes you're taking, you're, you're purposefully inaction or enacting, that's not the right word you're in a state of non-action where it's just it's very self-reflective that could be confused with you're giving up emotions Mm -hmm. can be powerful motivators to to go and do something with it can you talk a little bit about the difference between the self-reflection and and not
1: caring Uh,
2: buddhism isn't not caring right i mean you you care yeah Uh, absolutely yeah
1: I think you're right. There's a big misconception there because you'll hear words in Buddhism like acceptance, right, uh, which can evoke a sensation of resignation, and like the example you're talking about, it feels like they don't. Someone doesn't care, and but what what we're really striving for in in the practice of living mindfully, or, or if you want to call it Buddhist practice, whatever you want to call it, it's not action versus inaction. It's skillful action versus unskillful action. Like action is inevitable, right? If you say something and it triggers a thought in my mind, that's an action. I couldn't help that that's what happened. So suddenly I'm dealing with whatever arose in me. But where I do have power is how how I'm going to act from this step on. So sometimes it can be a skillful action to not say anything, but it could be a skillful action to say something. And there's a difference there. And I, so the misconception is a lot of people will think, oh, the more you practice this, the more you're going to bite your tongue and you're not going to say what was on your mind. And I found it to be quite the opposite because my natural tendency, like I said, is to avoid conflict. So my instinctual reactivity is to bite my tongue. And I found that the more I practice mindfulness, the more I feel a sense of my skillful actions should be saying what I'm feeling right now. And it's a express, Hey, I, that really, you know, that bugged me. Let me tell you why, rather than where before my reactivity is, well, I'll stay quiet and I'll let it fester. And now I just don't want to be around that person. Um, So it's not inaction. It's skillful action is what we're after.
2: You mentioned practice mindfulness. Can you, someone that is not familiar with that term of mindfulness, what is mindfulness and how do you practice it?
1: Okay. That's a good question. So mindfulness is the non-judgmental observation of the present moment. It's kind of like when you're sitting outside and you're watching the clouds go by, mindfulness is the art of, of awareness, of, 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 observing. So the opposite of mindfulness is a state of reactivity. You say something, I, it triggers a thought. The thought triggers an emotion, makes me say something back and, I'm caught in this constant form of reactivity without realizing that I'm being reactive. Uh, and mindfulness kind of steps in and it trains you to be able to learn to observe a little bit. Where typically we don't observe, we just, we're always reacting. So mindfulness as a practice is, uh, it doesn't have to be that you sit on a cushion and you meditate. It, it Mindfulness can be practiced doing anything. Like the, the fact that I can observe in one moment that I'm not good at observing, well, boom, there you did it. You're that's, that's actually mindfulness. (laughs) Uh, so you, you're just trying to be better at being aware, you know, um, if we were to think of this as an example, you can walk into a room that you've been in a hundred times and, but you've never paused to look around and say, Hmm, how many doorknobs are, you know, on all the little doors behind me? And I'm looking at the picture behind you right like uh, or uh, looking at my uh my plates i've done this while washing the dishes and noticing each little curve and pattern and things that i had never noticed about my plates because i've never paid attention so to do uh to wash my dishes mindfully i see something that i had never noticed before and that's looking at a plate that could happen in my relationship what have i not noticed before and it can happen, I think the most powerful place where it happens is looking inward and saying, where are my thoughts and words and actions coming from? And I might notice something that I didn't notice before. So that, in a nutshell, is mindfulness as a practice. It's learning to observe.
2: That's a That was a very good and mm-hmm. concise explanation. I yes. want to hone in on the marriage part of it. So yeah. have you had any moments, and I'll ask you too, have you had any moments where in those moments of of uh, mindfulness surrounding your spouse or the situation of your marriage that you've had a breakthrough personally to say, oh my goodness, I didn't even recognize that this is what she's experiencing or this is what he's experiencing. Uh, to put you on a spot, I'm asking for a very specific thing, but have there been any of these moments where you, because that you are being mindful about your spouse that you recognize something and then we're able to take skillful action with it?
1: Um, Yeah, I have. In fact, I think it's happened on multiple occasions now, where I'll I'll be applying this formula to me, right? Like a, a big breakthrough for me in my marriage was the recognition that I avoid conflict. I didn't know that about myself. And if anything, I maybe thought for a time that like that was a good quality of mine is that, oh, look at me, I'm so patient, I never lose my temper. And then through introspection realized, wow, that's actually not beneficial in our relationship at all because I don't say what's on my mind. And then she assumes that I either agree or disagree with something that both it may be wrong, but I didn't vocalize my view. I've noticed the same thing backwards with, you know, when I learned something about me and I'm like, Oh, that's why I do that. It has happened backwards where um, certain traits or behaviors that, I didn't quite understand about her that maybe they, they bugged me. Um, then suddenly there's that moment where you're like, Oh, I bet that's why she does that. And then we'll talk about it. And she would, she's even had a couple of instances where she's confirmed like, yeah, I think you're right. And it was like an aha moment for her too. And then it's like, Oh, okay. Well that makes sense. Why, why this dynamic is working this way. And and one of the examples is, um, you know, when I noticed my need to not say something to avoid conflict, we've talked about her need to be ultra competitive. Like where, where does that come from? And, you know, it wasn't initially talking to her about, Hey, why are you so competitive? It was me trying to do the analysis of, I wonder why that matters so much. Like she gets really bent out of shape if she loses, even if it's a little, an insignificant game we were playing. Um, And through that introspection, I was able to sit with her one day and, and say, Hey, I had this thought, you know, I, I wonder if because of the way you were brought up and the, the intensity with your siblings and everyone wants to feel like they were the one that, um, that, uh, I, I don't know, like the, the, the need to feel validated, right? Like, okay, you are the good child in their dynamic and in their family that was linked very closely to winning. And I didn't notice this for years in our marriage that like, that's why winning is such a big deal for her. It's ultimately her way of feeling like you are worthy to be loved because look how good you are. And when I couldn't see that, then it was a nuisance like, Oh, here comes the competitiveness. Oh my gosh. But when I did understand that compassion arose, it was like, Oh, I know what you're really after. And you know what? It is okay. Good job. You won. And 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 it made it that much more important for me if she didn't win to make sure she also understood like, Hey, just say, no, that's not a big deal. <laughs> where Still I, I don't think I would have known that had I, had I not noticed something about myself. So the introspection and that the whole mindfulness thing, it, it can go where you learn something about yourself, but it can also go where you learn something about your spouse.
2: I think we finally found a principle that can allow us to play Settlers of Catan again. Huh?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's going to take uh, some time and practice before we get to the employees. faith
2: marriage is one hurdle, but playing Settlers together is an entirely different, oh. enormously higher hurdle.
0: <laughs> I love this idea of mindfulness in your marriage, but I would like to switch gears about maybe mindfulness with your kids, I think that the number, one of the top three things that we get asked about constantly is how do we raise our children in this new dynamic? And how do we both be able to quote, you know, for all, all purposes, um, get our say in, you know, and Alan and I have had plenty of times where we have said to the kids, look, we don't agree on this. And this is, here's dad's point of view and here's mom's point of view. And why don't you tell us what you think about this particular thing? And that's kind of um with our older kids, how we've been able to handle it, but it's getting increasingly difficult as, you know, our kids get older and they have their own ideas and they form their own judgments about the world around them. And I, I love this idea of, of mindfulness. And I, I'm, and i'm like how do i teach my kids mindfulness and how do we how do we come together on our two different sides to present something to our kids that's palatable i don't know if that's the right word
1: yeah i mean i I've, I've thought a lot about this topic because i have three young kids and they're growing up in a in a mixed faith scenario where they go to church on sunday and they learn something And then they may come home and see something, you know, in me that they're like, wait a second, dad, you're, you're bad because you're not doing this or that. And it's, so it's forcing moments of, of dissonance where we've, now we've got to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And um, with my, so my wife and I have talked about this before because early on, as we were trying to navigate this, it, it felt very much like it was not balanced. It was like, okay, if you've adopted this new way of seeing the world, that's fine for you, but that's totally second class to the first view, which is the, what was already set as the norm. Mm. And so I said, well, let's just imagine it all happened backwards. Let's imagine that we were uh, Buddhists to start. And then the missionaries came knocking and they present a message that's very compelling to you. And it just like, it burns in your heart. Like, wow, this really speaks to me. So you convert and you follow this new path how would you like the stipulation of, well, this is just your thing. Never talk about it in the house. Go do your thing on Sundays and definitely don't bring the kids to it. Mm. And she was like, yeah, I would not like that at all. And I said, so we've got to navigate that backwards because that's what I'm feeling right now. I'm feeling like I'm totally second class. And so it started with that conversation. And then that evolved into, I have, we both have to respect each other's views and again fortunately in our case because it's like one tradition focuses on answers the other one focuses on questions there's not a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, what's the word there's not a lot of uh, conflict that has to happen when a concept comes up but what we do what I try to do to practice with my kids my only goal with them in terms of mindfulness is to help them develop a habit of of learning to look inward to to notice something they may not have noticed before Um, what they believe that's that doesn't really concern me i'm not concerned about their beliefs but i'm concerned with what tools i equip them with to learn how how to believe or or why they believe what they believe so when we practice mindfulness just as an example um, we'll talk about concepts like impermanence or interdependence and I'll I'll make them pick something in their room, like the pillow or their toy, a favorite toy or something. And, and we'll talk about what all did it take for this thing to exist. And that that alone starts a, a mental process that they had never thought of before. Oh, well, someone had to do this. And someone had to drive the fabric to there. And someone had to make the buttons. And And it, we'll talk about it for minutes and minutes and minutes. And they're always blown away at how much it really took for that thing to finally be here in their room. And that's it. That was the goal. And they appreciate their thing a little bit more. And we never got into any kind of topic about beliefs or doctrines or anything. It's just, uh, I'm trying to help them understand that they don't just exist independent of everything else in the world. Like everything that you have, even the simplest little toy that you have, it took all of space and time for this thing to be here right now. And that's how we practice mindfulness in, in our house. We never get into like, buddhist concepts like oh let's compare buddhism to mormonism we never do anything like that it's it's very much um, it's a family activity that everyone would be comfortable with including and especially my wife because i feel like if she wouldn't be comfortable doing it then i shouldn't be doing this with the kids without her there Mm -hmm. so we've made it like that and and backwards it's ideally it would be the same but it's not quite the same right because backwards it's like well then they need to be told uh, this or that, or you're supposed to believe this, or you're not supposed to do that. And that may rub a little bit different from my perspective, but I'm okay with that because we do also hold that view of, at the end of all of this, it's what you believe that matters. And if you're just taught this right now, fine, just be taught that right now. But at some point you have to decide the same way that we've decided. So we've adopted new, uh, new ways of talking about things where, instead of like my wife saying, oh, like swearing, uh, that's not something that we do in this house. N- now it's like, it has to be, that's not something that I do. And she'll have to explain why. And then I might chime in and say, it's something I don't do either. And let me tell you why I don't. And we may have different, totally different reasons for it. Or it may be a concept where it is something that I do. And it's something that she doesn't do. Uh like drinking coffee, right? That that's an example where she couldn't just say, In this house we don't drink coffee because then my kids are like, But wait a second, but dad does. Mm-hmm. So it forced us to say, Well, I do and let me tell you why. Mommy doesn't and she'll tell you why. We don't want you to, we'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. And uh but one day you get to decide if you do or you don't. And that's really the only deci that's the only decision that will ever really matter is the why that you get to pick why you do or why you don't do something. Yeah.
0: I I really appreciate you breaking that down, especially the mindfulness concept, because I think that's an easy way for all of us to approach it with our children. And I look at that and I think, Oh yeah, I can, I can say that to my kids and, and um, how, and how we, how we just say things differently. It's funny that you said swearing because we just, uh, we just had, we decided to do a home church last week just to see how it would go. And our son, uh, he asked us the question one week, what, what's so bad about swearing? And rather than us getting mad and saying, well, we don't do it, we stopped and we said, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. Why don't you research swearing and and come and why don't you do the research and and spend some time learning about the history of swearing (laughs) and then you're going to present it at home church, which is exactly what he did. And I feel like he, he gained way more than if we had just given him an answer, what he needed to know. No, go find yourself the knowledge that you need to know and you make a decision about how you feel and what you think. Yeah. 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 So I love that. I love the example of swearing because we, (laughs) I mean, that's something we just addressed the other
1: week. Right yeah that's that's something my son is going through now because he's he's not only learning a whole new language down here but he's learning all the nuances and mexico swearing is a a very common thing there's so many like slang swear words yeah so he's he's always coming home with a new one. Hey, what does this mean? What does that mean so it's forced us to well well th- here's what it means and then like why do you think people say that or what do you think they really mean? Why would you choose that word over another one that means the same and it's forced him to kind of address it rather than just a blanket it's bad don't say it
0: right
2: right oh no, this has been awesome i i want to make sure that we uh we haven't talked much we've mentioned the title of your your podcast but uh i'd love to to talk a little bit about it mm-hmm. um for those that have never listened to to secular buddhism i think it's it's so popular because of how you go about each episode so they're typically much I mean this is already the length of about three or four episodes <laughs> um, of secular Buddhism, so they're usually very bite-sized talking about one little principle, you share some
0: on yeah and,
2: and the, the arrow story, like there's these practical um, stories that have been passed down from for hundreds, if not thousands of years that really drive home these points, and it's just I don't think that we've shared a podcast with each other more than secular Buddhism. We'll listen to one that really strikes home and we'll send it to each other. And I think that the, the, the cool part about, uh, each episode is that we love how you start it, especially how you, um, you recognized when you discovered that it wasn't actually a Dalai (laughs) Lama quote, (laughs) Uh, but uh, we'll let, we'll let those that do listen, enjoy hearing it from you. But what is that quote that you, you start each episode with?
1: Yeah, so the the quote is, uh, don't try to use what you learned from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better whatever you already are. Mm -hmm.
2: It is a perfect way to start the podcast, especially in a mixed-faith marriage when you learn something from the podcast and want to share it with your spouse. One of the very first things that they hear is very disarming. It's Mm -hmm. very, uh, it it makes it, okay, I can do this. This isn't trying to convince me of anything that I don't already uh, believe or accept. Which is awesome. Uh, so, understanding, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. We've gotten a lot of emails and a lot of feedback about certain episodes. So, if someone asks us, "Hey, what uh, what are some of your favorite episodes, or what have people uh, responded back?" We've got a few that we can throw out to. Do you have any of those that are kind of like the greatest hits of <laughs> and, and and why do you think that is? If are there any of those those stories or concepts that that really resonate with people?
1: Yeah, I think one of the concepts that uh, was really well-received is the, I've done three different episodes that kind of touch on the idea of groundlessness, um, the idea of, of uncertainty. And I think those spoke uh, or resonated with people because it's it's a concept that's so foreign to us as Westerners in general. Um, it's very foreign in the Christian mindset. Uh, and it's it's just, a foreign concept to to think i can actually become comfortable with not uh, knowing what the future has in store for me or having no expectation of what i should be getting out of life um so yeah that that's a concept that i was very surprised when the first episode of stepping into groundlessness i think was the title of that one i got a lot of emails that were people were like okay this has all been good, but this, this one actually like blew my mind. And I don't think I'll ever see things quite the same after being introduced to that concept. So that was, that was a fun one. Cause that's exactly how it was for me. The first time I really encountered it, that's, it was a concept that really changed things for me. Yeah.
0: Where can our listeners go to, to listen to your podcast and um, where can they find you if they have questions or comments or want to get a hold of you? Uh,
1: so the, my website is secularbuddhism.com and all of the podcast episodes are uploaded to there. You can find the podcast in any podcast software or app. If you just search for secular Buddhism, you'll find it. It's, it's the only podcast that has that name. Yeah. Uh, there is another podcast called The Secular Buddhist, and that's a different podcast Um, that's more interview styled. Uh, Mine's called Secular Buddhism, but the website, I think secularbuddhism.com is the easiest way to find links to anything that I'm doing.
2: Noah, thank you so much for joining us. I want to end on a fun note, if we could. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm not going to ask you to like recite anything for us or anything like (laughs)
1: 97.9.
2: Tell us, I love your passion for, um, do you, call, is it hang gliding? Or? No,
1: it's para- para- paragliding, paragliding, paragliding. Wow.
2: Paramotoring, paramotoring, right. Cause you, you do it with motors. So yeah. how did you get into that and why is it so awesome?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, th- this will be fun because this actually still ties into the, the podcast as well. But... I figured it would. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I, my whole life I've been fascinated with aviation. My twin brother and I, since we were little, we had posters of fighter jets and helicopters. And we got into skydiving when we were 16, 15 or 16. Uh, we both became pilots. I became a helicopter pilot. He became a, a fixed wing pilot. And just, uh, when was it? Uh, five years ago or so, I discovered there in Utah, it's, it's common to see at the point of the mountain people paragliding. And it had never, it had never crossed my mind that that would be a form of aviation that was so accessible. I had already done aviation and I, flying helicopters is extremely expensive. Uh, the career path for a helicopter pilot is, can be a difficult one. Um, so I had already started to shift gears thinking aviation is not the way I'm going to go. And a conversation with my brother about motorcycles led to, well, instead of motorcycles, why don't you consider a paramotor? And I was like, uh, are they even in the same realm? How is that even possible? And when I found out that they were, I thought, oh, well, then forget the motorcycle. I'll go straight to a paramotor. Um, And then my – that itch that I've had my whole life to fly was suddenly satisfied with something so small and simple that I could throw it in the back of my truck and drive to a field and take off and fly for an hour, like without having to go through all the hoops that you do when you're flying an actual aircraft. And this was right around the time that I was really starting to experience my faith transition too. So it was like, it was giving me a sense of freedom. It's like, get, get away from all the complicated things that I'm dealing with in life, to go hang out in the sky for a little bit a little bit and feel a sense of freedom. And the irony was the more I was doing it, the more comfortable I was getting without with, with the idea of not having something firm to stand on, right mm-hmm. Like normally you feel safe when you're on the ground. I was feeling safe when I was not on the ground. Right around that time as I was transitioning into uh, Buddhism, that teaching and that concept of groundlessness really kicked in and it hit home for me because i thought well i'm experiencing that in real life the more comfortable i get without uh, or with with being in the sky the more uh the more confident i am because the first few times you fly it's scary like you encounter a, a thermal and your wing kind of shakes around or turbulence and an airplane scares people you know but when you get really comfortable uh with with uh everything that entails being groundless Um, it's not so scary anymore. And I was experiencing that simultaneously in my passion for flying with my day-to-day life. Like suddenly the uncertainty of, where's my marriage going to end up? That wasn't so scary anymore. It was like, well, I don't know where it's going to end up, but I know where it is today. Today, it's still good. And I started finding this new sense of peace that I experienced while, while paragliding, but I was also experiencing it while encountering all the uncertainties of what do I believe? What is my marriage going through? What's going to happen when I die? What if this isn't what I thought it was? Like all those things were turbulence and I was getting really comfortable with not knowing. And that was, uh, so it was a fun time. Like the more passionate I became about flying, the more comfortable I was becoming with uncertainty in life and thinking, I don't have to know the answers anymore. For me, my, my path went from being a seeker of truth to being a, a seeker of peace. It's like, well, uh, I don't need the answers anymore. What I, what I want is I just want uh, to experience the, the most joy that I can in this uh, experience of being alive. So that, uh, and and that hasn't changed. You know, I've, it's funny because it's, it's brought me full circle back. Now I have a flight school and I teach people to fly and, and here I am making a career of flying. And that was not my intended goal from the outcome. But that's been a part of the. We'll see where this goes, and this is where it's led. And at the same time, same with my my marriage and and my uh, everything that I've gone through there. Where it's like, I don't know, this isn't where we thought it was all going to go. But guess what? Turns out we're actually somewhere pretty good, and here we are, and we're trying to continue making it, <laughs> making it work. So I feel like I've landed in a good place by taking off.
0: <laughs> wow.
2: That's great. Perfect way to end the podcast. Noah, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to be on on your show.
2: Absolutely. Make sure to listen to Secular Buddhism. Subscribe via the podcast app of your choice. And if you met your maximum that you can subscribe to, which I don't think exists, you can unsubscribe from ours so that you can subscribe to his. It's absolutely wonderful. Thanks for all the work that you put in that too
1: don't do that find another way <laughs> <laughs> thanks Noah we're gonna see that it was better that we grew up together tell me you don't want to leave cause if change is what you need you can change right next to me when you're high I'll take the lows you can ebb and I can flow We'll take it slow and grow as we go, grow as we go.